If you have your Bible this morning, I invite you to turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 2. We've been walking with Nehemiah in recent weeks as he has tried to do the impossible. And as we've done this, we have sought to learn two lessons. First, how can we connect with the Lord? The book of Nehemiah is the story of how Nehemiah connected with the Lord to accomplish the things that God had put in his path. And so we want to learn how we can connect with the Lord as we go about our lives. The second thing that we want to learn as we study the book of Nehemiah is simply how to succeed. Nehemiah is a success story. Nehemiah was successful at the things that God had called him to do. We know that God has called us to do some things. How can we follow the path that Nehemiah was on? How can we know the success that Nehemiah knew? How can we be successful? But today I want us to focus on something that honestly has puzzled me ever since I began to study this book a number of years ago. Why is it that Nehemiah was the one who rebuilt the walls. If you've been here in recent weeks, you know that the city of Jerusalem was in disarray. The walls had been knocked down. There was rubble in the road. There was no security in the city. Things were bad in Jerusalem. And the walls needed to be rebuilt. And, and Nehemiah was the one that steps into, into the scene and leads the rebuilding of the walls. But why was it Nehemiah? Nehemiah was not the most likely person to do this. There were other people that, that were there first. There were other people who were better qualified to rebuild the walls. I'll run through just a list of them. Uh, one would be Zerubbabel. And you may not know that name, but he was the, the political leader or religious leader, the first leader that went back to Jerusalem after the 70-year exile. He took a bunch of people with him. He had a mandate from the king to make changes in Jerusalem. Why wasn't it Zerubbabel that rebuilt the walls? Well, it seems from the record that it just never crossed Zerubbabel's mind. There's, there's nothing in the record that said Zerubbabel even considered rebuilding the walls. The next person on the list would be Ezra. Ezra was as well a political leader and a religious leader. Ezra was a prophet of God and he led a group of people back to Jerusalem, yet he didn't rebuild the walls. Again, there's nothing in the record and there's a whole book called the book of Ezra and, and there's nothing in that book where there's any consideration of the rebuilding of the walls, the cleaning up of the city, the restoring of safety and security. Why didn't Ezra do it? Or why didn't the city officials do it? Uh, the, we'll read here in a moment in Nehemiah chapter 2 uh, of Nehemiah's communication with the city officials. These were people who had some responsibility and some authority in the city. They had been living there for decades. Yet, so far as we can tell, they never even had a conversation about rebuilding the walls. Well, what about the critics? We're going to read in a moment that there were critics. Nehemiah had critics. And we'll see something about them today, more about them in the next couple of weeks. But there was Geshem, and there was Tobiah, and there was Sanballat. And those people uh, had a lot to say when Nehemiah began to rebuild the wall. But why didn't those people rebuild the wall? They had been there a number of years. They had had an opportunity. And so far as we can tell, none of them sought to restore Jerusalem or rebuild the wall. 
What about the thousands of people who lived in and around the city of Jerusalem? They didn't seem to do anything. What about the older people who had lived there in the squalor the longest? What about the younger people who had more energy and, and idealism? Why didn't somebody rebuild the wall? Why was it not rebuilt until Nehemiah showed up? Why was Nehemiah the one who rebuilt the wall? It certainly was not because he was more qualified. He had never built a wall before. He came from the food services industry. It wasn't because he was close. He lived a half a world away, 800 miles away. Uh, he was a slave. He had no freedom. His master was a king who had previously said he was opposed to the rebuilding of the wall. Nehemiah was the most unlikely person, yet Nehemiah was the one who rebuilt the wall. Why was it Nehemiah and not one of these other people? Why was it Nehemiah, not one of the thousands of other people who could have, who would have been more likely to rebuild the wall? Why was it Nehemiah? That's puzzled me. Now, before we get to the answer, let me tell you why it's an important question. Because you and I live around some broken walls. Because you and I have some broken down walls in our families. Because you and I have some rubble in the streets of our lives. Because there are things that God has called us to do. There are things that we could do on our campus or in our workplace or our neighborhood or in our church. There are all kinds of things around us that we could do. God wants us to do those things. God has called us to do those things. Yet most people, like most people in Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day, most people won't do anything about it. Most people will never rebuild the wall. Most people will never experience any real change. So I want to know, how was Nehemiah the one that did this? Because I want to be a Nehemiah. I want to be like Nehemiah. I want to recognize that there are problems in my life, problems in my family, problems around me, and I want to be the one that God uses to make a change. I don't want to be like Zerubbabel or Ezra or the thousands of people that were there. I don't want to be like the critics. It's easy to have an opinion about something, right? I want to be the person who does something about it. Why was Nehemiah the one who rebuilt the walls? Well, let's read in Nehemiah chapter 2 and see if we can find the answer. Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 17, I'll tell you here that Nehemiah has made it to Jerusalem uh, we saw that over the last few weeks. He was uh, in Persia, in modern-day Iran, but because of uh, the, the, really the work of God, he has now made it to Jerusalem. He has inspected the walls. He heard that they were down. He heard the city was in disarray, but he's now inspected that, so he's seen it with his own eyes. And then see what happens in verse 17. So I said to them, now it's Nehemiah speaking, and he's talking to the city officials there in Jerusalem. So I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned. Come, let's rebuild Jerusalem's wall so that we will no longer be a disgrace. And I told them how gracious the hand of my God had been on me and what the king had said to me. And they said, let's start rebuilding and their hands were strengthened to do this good work. When Sanballat the Hornite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about this, they mocked and despised us and said, what is this you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Well, I gave them this reply. 
The God of the heavens is the one who will grant us success. We, his servants, will start building, but you have no share, no right, and no historic claim in Jerusalem. I think in that short passage, there are three reasons why Nehemiah made a difference that thousands of others could not. There there are three reasons why Nehemiah was the one who brought change when so many others experienced no change. I want to be a Nehemiah. I want to know these three things. Number one, here's why Nehemiah was able to rebuild the wall. Nehemiah refused to accept the status quo. Nehemiah refused to accept the status quo. He refused to believe that things had to be the way they had always been. Now, when Nehemiah got to Jerusalem, the walls had been broken down for 140 years. Rubble was in the road for for decades. People had grown accustomed to it. We talked about that last week. People couldn't really envision it ever being different. But Nehemiah shows up and he says something that really is, is so obvious, it, it doesn't seem like it needed to be said. Look back at verse 17. We read it a moment ago. And, and see if this is not odd to you. So I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned. So Jerusalem lies in ruins, its gates have been burned. Of course, they knew that already, right? Nehemiah's just been there for a few days, but they have been there for years, for decades. They knew that the walls were down. They knew that the gates had been burned. So why was it that Nehemiah had to show up and say that? Because, listen church, they had learned to live with it. But Nehemiah shows up and he sees the walls and he sees the rubble and he says, I will not live with it any longer. He says, this is where I draw the line. I'm not going to put up with this. I'm not going to live with the status quo. Something has got to change. You see, that's the biggest hurdle, I think, to ever making a change. First, we have to get sick and tired of the way things are. We have to get sick and tired of living in the rubble and living with the walls down. We must quit saying things cannot change. We must refuse to accept the status quo. We, we, must, not, we must stop saying things like this. I will never overcome this persistent sin. But some people have been dealing with the same sin year after year after year. And, and finally, you've come to the point where you just believe this is how life is going to be lived by you. This is just the way it's going to be. I will never change. I've tried to change. I've wanted to change. I've suffered because I haven't changed. Nothing's changed. It'll stay like this. We can't say that. Some people are saying, my marriage will never be a better marriage. It'll never be stronger. It'll never be healthier. Uh, For years, I've lived in the mess of my marriage. It will never change. We can't say that. We can't say my devotional life will never get better. My my consistency in Bible and prayer. I hear other people talking about having these special moments with God. I'm just never going to get there. We must not say that. We must not say our health or our fitness will never be better. We must not say that a lost family member will never be saved. We've got to say, rather, I've had enough. It is time for it to change. And that's what Nehemiah did. Look at verse 17 again, the end of the verse. He says, come, let's rebuild Jerusalem's wall so that we will no longer be a disgrace. 
That's Nehemiah saying it must stop here. I have had enough. I have lived in this long enough. You have lived in this long enough. I'm ready for a change. So you'll never experience change till you get to the point where it is urgent. Sometimes being fed up is the one trigger we need to finally experiencing change. And you know, this isn't just something you see in Nehemiah. You see this throughout the Word of God. I think about the story of David and Goliath, and I use that story because it's so familiar. David showed up one day when the Israelite army was in battle array against the Philistines. Now, David was just a shepherd. You know this story. And his dad had sent him to check on his brothers who were soldiers. And so David shows up and he finds this situation going on. That one soldier from the Philistines, a giant named Goliath, had repeatedly stood before the Israelites and he had defied them. He said, you send your guy out and I'll battle your guy and whoever wins, wins the battle. And he just taunted them. And he did this twice a day, the Bible said, for 40 days. Think about that. That's six weeks, almost six weeks he's been coming out. And I'm sure that the Israelite soldiers, the first time that Goliath came out, they were probably pretty mad about it. They probably thought, you know, we're not going to stand for this. We're going to do something about this. But they didn't. And so then Goliath comes out again and they don't do anything. And and then all through the week, Goliath comes out and then the next week and the next week and the next week. And finally, they just learned to live with it. In fact, 1 Samuel 17, where the story is recorded, verse 11, it says, when Saul and all Israel heard these words from the Philistine, they lost their courage and they were terrified. So six weeks had gone by. they, They had learned to live with the taunts of Goliath. They thought, this will never change. And then David showed up. And when David heard Goliath, David immediately said, this cannot continue. In fact, verse 26, 1 Samuel 17, 26, he says, just who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And you know the rest of the story. David goes out, puts his trust in the Lord, and David defeats Goliath. Now the question is, why was it David? David was, the, was perhaps the, the least likely person to defeat Goliath. There were thousands of other people who could have defeated Goliath. Had they put their trust in the Lord, any soldier in the army could have defeated Goliath. Goliath fell not because David was a great warrior, but, but Goliath fell because David put his trust in God. Thousands of people could have done it. Why for six weeks had none of them done it? And why did David do it? Because David said he had had enough. Now you and I, there are problems around us. There are problems in our lives, in our families, in our marriages, in our workplace, that we know people who are lost. There's rubble in the road. And we live within the earshot of Goliath who's crying out to us and defying our our God. So maybe for you it's bitterness that comes from your refusal to forgive somebody. And that bitterness is making you angry. And that bitterness is robbing you of joy. But you've learned to live with it. 
Maybe it's some persistent sin, as we said a moment ago. Maybe it's lust or greed or gossip or procrastination or pride or laziness or, or any number of things. Maybe it's a fear. Maybe that's what's paralyzing you and you've learned to live with, with some fear. Maybe it's a bad relationship that's pulling you away from the Lord. And maybe two times a day, it's as if Goliath is coming out and robbing you of peace and joy. What's going to have to happen for there to be a change? You've got to say, I've had enough. God can bring a change. God wants me to live an abundant life. God wants me to have an impact in the places that he places me. I've had enough. And so we have a couple other things that have to happen for us to make a change. But let me just stop here for a quick moment. What is it in your life that you need to speak to and say, I've had enough? What habit, what, what, uh, what temptation, what relationship, what, what, what person in your life doesn't know Christ but needs to know Christ? What, what do you need to say along with David, along with Nehemiah? I've had enough. That's the first step to being the one that brings change. Now there is a second step. The second step that Nehemiah engaged in is that he had a big faith. Now, let's look back at the scripture we read. I'm sure after the, the words of Nehemiah in verse 17, when Nehemiah says, we've, we've got to make a change, that uh, many of the city officials must have been skeptical. Uh, they must have said, you know, we, we can't do that. That's impossible. We, we, nobody's ever done that before. We don't have enough resources to rebuild the wall. People maybe have tried to rebuild the wall. Others have failed to rebuild the wall. Uh, The walls, if we rebuild them, will just get knocked down again. Or it's too hard to rebuild the wall. So what allowed Nehemiah to refuse to accept the status quo and call for the rebuilding of the wall? What gave him that boldness to say, let's rebuild this wall? Well, not only did he refuse to accept the status quo, but Nehemiah had a big faith. Now listen to this verse, verse 18. He says, I told them how the gracious hand of my God had been on me. He said, guys, God has already gotten me this far. I know that God will continue to work and God will get me the rest of the way there. Nehemiah had faith and trust that God would take care of him. You see, those people who accomplish much Those people who see real change happen are people who have faith that God can bring about real change. So while others here in this story focused on all the reasons why they couldn't rebuild the wall, Nehemiah focused on God who he knew could rebuild the wall. See, if we're going to see a change happen, we have to not accept the status quo, but we have to have big, bold faith in the power of God. And you see this as well throughout scripture. And when I was writing this message, I I was determined to use just biblical illustrations today. So let me share just one more. I think about Moses. So you know the story of Moses, the people of, of God were slaves in Egypt and had been for 400 years. For 400 years, nobody had rescued them. For 400 years, nobody had led them uh, to be free of the Egyptians until Moses came along. And so Moses comes along, God puts it upon his heart to be the leader of the people, to lead them away from Pharaoh uh, and, the, and the strongest army on the planet at the time. 
Exodus chapter 3, verse 11, when Moses gets this call, he says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Moses says, I can't do it. I don't have enough power. I don't have enough influence. I don't have an army. I don't have the wealth to do it. And you know what God said? God said, you're right, but I'm going with you. You see, when we say we can't do something, what we're really saying is, I can't do it without help. If you say something as simple as, I can't open this jar, well, you're not saying that the jar can't be opened. You're saying, I can't open this jar unless somebody helps me. Unless somebody with big hands and strong arms helps me, I can't get the jar open. You're saying, I can't do it alone. If you say, I can't afford to pay for something, you don't really mean that, that it can't be paid for. You just mean that you can't do it alone. Now, if somebody who was exceptionally wealthy came alongside you and they helped you pay for it, well, of course you could do it. When you say, I can't do it, you mean you can't do it alone. If you say, I can't protect myself, what do you mean? Well, you mean you can't protect yourself alone. But, you know, if there's a, if there's a big burly guy with a uh, you know, with, with a gun and a security guard next to you, well, then I could protect myself. I mean, I can't do it alone. Moses said, I can't do it. And God said, you're right. You can't do it alone, but I'm going with you. Nehemiah couldn't rebuild the walls, but Nehemiah had a partner and his partner was God. And God could rebuild the walls. See, here's the process through which people get stuck in life. God puts a challenge on their heart. God calls them to do something, change something, fix something, reach somebody. And they begin to think, we begin to think of all the reasons why we can't do that. I don't know how to do that. I don't have the personality. I don't have the resources. I don't have the strength. I, don't, I, I just can't do it. But, but what we're doing is we're strangling the dream, the call that God's put on our lives by just focusing on our resources. What we need to do if we're going to see something happen, if we're going to see a change, is we need to focus on the greatness of God. Don't come up with a list of reasons why you can't do it. Of course you can't do it. But come up with a list of reasons why God can. Those who succeed focus not on their limitations but on the power of God. And that's exactly what Nehemiah did. You see it in verse 18, as we read just a moment ago, he points to the fact that God's gracious hand had been on him. If you go down to verse 20, he does it again. After he talks or hears from the critics, he says, uh, the God of heavens is the one who will grant us success. The reason why Nehemiah was able to be successful is because of his big, bold faith in God. So what is it that you would do for the Lord if you knew you couldn't fail. Have you ever heard that question before? It was um, most famously asked by uh, somebody a generation ago that uh, maybe didn't have the best reputation as a gospel preacher. And so a lot of people have dismissed that question, but I think it's a good question. What would you do, what would you do today if you knew that you couldn't fail? Because too many times we live our lives, we make decisions based on the limitations that we have instead of making decisions on the power that God has. 
Had Nehemiah made decisions based on his limitations, he would never have left the Persian Empire. When he was burdened to go and and rebuild the walls, he would have just made a list of reasons why it was impossible, and he would have stayed right where he was. But he didn't. He knew that he couldn't do it, but the one who would go with him could do it, and he marched on. What would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? Maybe God is partnering with you to do that very thing in order to accomplish something great. In order to make a change, you have to refuse to accept the status quo, but then you simply need to have a big faith. And then finally, Nehemiah partnered with others. And so all of chapter three is about his partnership with others. And I may say more about that this next week. But, but the obvious thing here is that Nehemiah did not build the walls himself. He didn't do it alone. We see that in the end of verse 18. It says, they said, let's start rebuilding. And their hands were strengthened to do this good work. And so all kinds of people pitch in and help rebuild the walls. Here's an important lesson. If we're going to see real change happen, it will not happen if we're doing it alone. And we see this in the Old Testament. We see this in the New Testament. That's why we have the church, the body of Christ. That's why the Bible talks about Christians ought to live the Christian life with other Christians. That's why most of the commands in the New Testament require another Christian for you to be obedient to that. Love one another, encourage one another, walk with one another, admonish one another, forgive one another. We need, if we're going to see real change happen We must partner with other people. Nehemiah was successful because he said, I will not accept the status quo. I trust that God can do it. And I'm going to get people to help me. There is nothing that is too hard. There is nothing that cannot change in our lives if we'll do the same thing. If we'll refuse to accept the status quo. If we'll have faith that God can do it. And we'll get people to help us. Now, you might say, well, pastor, how could people help me? There there are four ways, very quickly. Number one, they can pray for you. If you are going to make a change, if the Lord has put something on your heart in this worship's time that you need to change, no matter how embarrassing it might be, no matter how private it might be, you need to tell somebody so that they can pray. The Bible says over and over in the New Testament that God works through the prayers of his people and that when we partner together in prayer, that things happen that would not have happened otherwise. You need people praying for you. You need to pray. The second thing you need to do, not only ask somebody to pray, but you need to ask somebody for wisdom. The Bible says there's a multitude, there's safety and a multitude of counselors. And when I look back over my life, the worst decisions I've ever made, I made alone. But when I look back over my lifespan, the best decisions I've ever made, I made with other people. And so we need to tell people for prayer. We need to tell other people for wisdom. We need to tell other people for accountability. There needs to be somebody that, that loves you enough and knows enough about your life that they know how you're doing with the change. You need to tell somebody, I'm struggling with something, but I'm asking God to help me change it. I think God has put it upon my heart that I don't have to live this way, and I know I don't have the strength to do it, but God does, and I want to see a change. And I want you to pray for me, I want you to give me wisdom, but I want you to hold me accountable as I work through this change. And then finally, you need to tell people just so that they can help. The Bible says in in Galatians that that we ought to be bearing the loads of of one another. We need to be encouraging and helping one another. 
If we're going to have real change, decide you're not going to accept the status quo. Trust in God, but tell somebody. And as we partner with others, we can experience change. Thousands of people walk through the rubble of Jerusalem every day. And they looked around and they, and they complained about it and they suffered. But nobody did anything. Imagine that. Thousands of people. Nobody did anything. N- none of the rubble got picked up. None of, the, none of the gates got put into place. And you know, I think a lot of times, same thing is true in our lives. We walk through the rubble of sin and disappointment and bad relationships. We have passions that God has given to us. God has called us and burdened us to do things and, and we have failed to do it. We've just learned to live with it. We just walk through the rubble and we put up with it. We complain about it and we suffer a little bit, but nothing changes. We're like the thousands of people who walk through Jerusalem. But I want us to be like Nehemiah, the one who said, I've had enough and God can make a change. And I'm going to partner with people and trust in God until it happens. Can we be Nehemiah's? Now, I do want to show you one more thing as we work our way through the book of Nehemiah. I I want you to see that this is not just a story of uh, steps for how to have success. But one of the great things about the book of Nehemiah is that you find Jesus in every chapter. And so so let me just show you here uh, one, one more way that we see something of the good news of Jesus right here in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah is an interesting book to study, and if we were spending 20 weeks in Nehemiah instead of six or seven weeks, uh, I would show you all these connections. But Nehemiah is connected with almost every other book in the Old Testament in some way or another. It's connected to Deuteronomy. It's connected, of course, to Jeremiah. There's a close connection there. Uh, it's, it's, uh, Second Chronicles is really some of the story that leads up, and then Malachi. The, it's, it's connected all over, all over the Bible. But one of, the, one of the places it's connected, as I said a moment ago, is Jeremiah. So the, the reason the walls are broken down is explained in Jeremiah. So let me just read. It's a few verses, but let me just read this. Jeremiah 25, 8. Therefore, this is what the Lord of armies says. Because you have not obeyed my words. This is years before the walls came down. Because you've not obeyed my words, I'm going to send for all the families of the north... This is the Lord's declaration and send for my servant, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and I will bring them against this land, against its residents and against all these surrounding nations. And I will completely destroy them and make them an example of horror and scorn and ruins forever. God says, because you're, you're disobedient, I'm going to bring an enemy in to, to wreak havoc among you. The next verse, he says, I will eliminate the sound of joy and gladness from them, the voice of the groom and the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. He says, I'm going to allow your whole lives to be destroyed. And that happened. Uh, It's it's an interesting historical story. That happened and uh, the prophecy was given. And then years later, just as Jeremiah had prophesied, it happened. But what we see here is a picture of sin. The reason the walls were down, the reason the uh, Jews were scattered is because of their sin. And the same thing is true of our sin. Our sin robs us of joy. Our sin robs us of life, of eternal life. It robs us of gladness and the whole list of things here. Productivity, sin. 
But listen to what the Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 30. This is a passage that, that Nehemiah quoted in, back in chapter 1. He prayed this prayer and he quoted part of Deuteronomy chapter 30. And I, so I want you to listen to these, these verses. Here's, here's the promise of God in the midst of our sin. When all these things happen to you, the blessings and curses I have set before you, and you come to your senses while you are in all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. So when, when it gets really bad and you're scattered and you realize you need to return to the Lord, here's what will happen. When you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and all your soul and do everything I'm commanding you today, then he will restore your fortunes, have compassion on you, and gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. So he says, when you turn to me, I will restore everything. Not because you deserve it, you're still guilty of sin, you are where you ought to be. But because I'm so gracious and loving, I will restore. He goes on to say, even if your exiles are at the furthest horizon, he will gather you and bring you back from there. He says, no matter how far you've gone from the Lord, the Lord will still bring you back. And then he says, the Lord your God will bring you into the land your father's possessed and you will take possession of it. And he will cause you to prosper and multiply you more than he did your father's. Now here's, here's something amazing about the Lord that we see in Nehemiah. They suffered because of their sin. And we suffer. We are separated from God. Every one of us guilty of sin. And we are hopeless except for one thing. The gracious, merciful heart of God that wants to draw us back if we'll call on him. If there's never been a time in your life when you've recognized that you've, you've been guilty of sin and that your only hope is that God would forgive you. And you've perhaps thought, I've gone too far. I have done too much. It has been too long. I hope you're encouraged by what happens here in the book of Nehemiah. And you know today that God so loves you that if you call on him, no matter how far, no matter how long, no matter what sin, God will bring you back. And if this morning you need to call upon God, you have this assurance that God will love you and forgive you. He will restore your life and he will adopt you into his family. Now let me ask you to bow your head and close your eyes for just a brief moment this morning. There are two ways I, I want to challenge you today. Number one is uh, if there's something that needs to change in you, around you, would you be a Nehemiah? instead of being one of the thousands. That's challenge number one. But if you have never responded to the Lord in his grace and mercy, would you do that today? That's the most important thing. Don't listen to Satan who says you've gone too far, you've gone, been gone too long. No, the Lord promises us that no matter how far we've been spread, that the Lord will bring us back if we'll call on him. Father, help me, help us to be sensitive to you and to respond as you call. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we respond.